Hello, EPC family. I pray that you're well and you have what you need. Before we get into the sermon today, I'd like to share a few details with you once again. Just a reminder that all Sunday gatherings, midweek activities, and programs have been canceled up until March 31st in response to the declared state of emergency. I ask that you refer to our website and Facebook page for updates for the impact that this may have beyond the March 31st date. Secondly, if you haven't already joined our Facebook page, please do so because it will contain a number of updates and information along the way. So make sure you do that and also keep checking our website. Thirdly, our staff are continuing to work even though uh, the office is closed. And uh, please understand that we, we are not considered an essential service, which means we're not allowed to have the office open or accessible. So if you want to get in contact with us, please do it through email or phone. Fourthly, some of you have been inquiring even throughout this week as, much as, as well as last week about giving during this time. And as I said last week, there are four options. You can go in online on our website and donate. You can mail us a check. Uh, and you could also uh, call the office and arrange directly monthly withdrawals. Just leave a message. We'll get back to you. Or you could put your tithe aside until you're able to return. I do want to stress how important consistent giving is going to be throughout this crisis as we try to meet our operating budget and our missions budget and our benevolence uh, along the way. So let's stay faithful to that. I want to encourage you to continue to check in on friends and family, neighbors, and other church members to ensure they have what they need. And please let us know if, if there is a need that you become aware of. Uh, let us know that so we can help meet that need. The other thing I want to share with you is that there's a virtual prayer gathering scheduled at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, this morning, uh, on, and it will go up until noon today. And what we're asking is, even though we can't gather together physically, I'm asking that you would take that time either on your own or with your family at 11 o'clock today and just spend that time in prayer, knowing that members of our congregation, wherever we find ourselves, are praying. We have many on the front lines of uh, essential services that are in harm's way every day, and we're praying for their safety and protection. We have others who have been tested, haven't gotten their results back yet, others who've lost their jobs. It's important to pray, and, and so uh, let's, let's do that today at 11 o'clock. There's no question that we are in uncharted waters these days. I've been a pastor through some challenging realities over the past 30-plus years, but nothing really like this. The present COVID-19 pandemic has forced us as individuals and as churches to adjust and rethink how we continue to do what we feel is important to do. While at the same time, we need to adjust to this new reality of what we're facing. I've personally never pastored during a pandemic before. This is new territory for me. In light of this, I've been intentional about processing the changes that are our new reality, asking God to lead me, lead us as we attempt to follow him in light of these new restrictions. I've decided to try and carry on most of the things that I normally do, like sermon preparation and recording the sermon, even though I can't preach it live on Sunday to you, the administration that needs to be done, communication, leadership, prayer, all those things 
are able to continue as they did before. Even though I've had to adjust, I can still do most of those things for the most part. I've also discovered that there are a few new opportunities to connect and be creative in ministry that we were not carrying out before. And so one of those things is I've decided to launch this Easter preaching series because I believe our present circumstances doesn't limit us in continuing on in this regard. And so Easter is coming, and so last week we launched that series. If there was ever a time we needed to be reminded of the Easter message, I believe it's now. Now, last week we launched this new preaching series entitled Journey to Easter. It's going to be a short four-week series with stops outside Samaria in Bethany and the final two located in Jerusalem. Now, at each of these stops, Jesus will reveal important truth to us about the significance of Easter. Our first stop last week took place on the border of Samaria. It was there that Jesus reminded us that it, that it is the marginalized, the rejected, the broken, the sick, the helpless that he came to redeem. And he also demonstrated that God can do miraculous things even though we're in a place we never intended to be on a road we never set out to be on. Today we will be stopping in Bethany at the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. These three are close friends of Jesus. Our scripture is found in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, chapter 11. The first 11 chapters of John are structured around what is referred to as the seven signs or the seven miracles of Jesus. The first, changing the water into wine. Secondly, healing the royal official's son. Then thirdly, healing the man who was paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda. Then the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water and healing of the man born blind. And then the seventh sign, the seventh miracle, the final one in this series is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In chapter 20 of John, in verse 31, John tells his readers why it is that he has written about these signs. And this is what he said. But these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The timing of this seventh sign or this seventh miracle is critical. Mark in his gospel tells us that it takes place leading up to what we call Passion Week or Holy Week, Palm Sunday, followed by the Last Supper, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday morning. John places it here to foreshadow Jesus' own death and resurrection. In fact, it is this miracle that is the last straw for the religious leaders who ultimately are responsible for Jesus' death, for his crucifixion. This sign, this miracle that we're looking at today, starts and ends like most of the others. It begins by telling us a man was ill, and it ends with him restored. Yet there is a great deal of important information that is revealed about Jesus that we need to understand on our journey to Easter that happens in between 
the man being ill, and then him being restored. Let's read together today, John 11, 1 to 6. Our, our story today takes place in all of, the cha- all of chapter 11, but we're just going to read the first six verses. It says, now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified to it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. There are three parts of this story I'd like us to consider today. The first, an urgent request. An urgent request. Jesus and his disciples are ministering near the Jordan River where John the Baptist had been baptizing in the early days of his ministry. We're told that Lazarus, who was the brother of Martha and Mary from Bethany, lay sick. He was in dire need. He's dying. Now, Jesus was apparently a frequent guest in their home when he visited Jerusalem. And the sisters who are grasping, who are understanding the gravity of this situation, sent word to their friend, sent word to their teacher, Jesus, that their brother was desperately and critically ill. And they send what I believe is an interesting message. This is what they said. The one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. They are appealing to Jesus' relationship with and love for Lazarus to motivate Jesus to come to them and heal their brother. In essence, what they're saying is this. Jesus, if you love Lazarus, you will do something to stop this from happening. When Jesus received this message, his response was, this sickness will not end in death. It's an opportunity for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Yet it says that he stayed two more days. Now, if you do the math, if you do the math, the truth is you will discover that Lazarus was already dead by the time Jesus got the message. Jesus was one day's journey away from Bethany. He delayed two days in coming. Then he took one day, a full day's journey, to get to them. So when you add that up, that's four days. And when he got there, he was informed that Lazarus had already been dead for four days. So Lazarus was already dead by the time Jesus got the message. In fact, Jesus informed his disciples long before he came. He said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, 
and I'm going so I can wake him. Now, obviously, Jesus is referring to dying here, and this is a common Hebrew image found in Scripture because if you see through all the Hebrew writings, death was referred to as a sleep from which there is no waking. And when certain kings or people died, it they often recorded that they slept with their fathers. They were, they were buried with their fathers. Sleep was a metaphor for death. The disciples, though, took Jesus literally. That Lazarus was asleep and would in turn be, must be feeling better now and everything's looking out good. And Jesus says, no, no, he's dead. He's dead. And for the sake of your belief, I am glad I wasn't there to stop it. And with that, then they set out for Bethany. The second part of the story I want us to see is unmet expectations. Bethany was less than two miles away from Jerusalem. And because of this, many Jews from Jerusalem we're told, had come to comfort Martha and Mary and to mourn the death of their brother Lazarus with them. And it's these Jews from Jerusalem will actually serve as an important witness to Jesus being the Son of God. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, he encountered both sisters, independent of each other, and had an independent conversation with each of them. I want us to note that both conversations began exactly the same. Both women, independent of each other, said the same first sentence to Jesus. And the sentence is this. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. They are clearly disappointed that Jesus did not intervene in their situation to bring about the outcome that they desired him to bring, which was the healing of their brother. You can feel the disappointment as you read the story. They had expectations that were not met And they're disappointed in Jesus. Now, these two separate conversations reveal some very important information about Jesus. The first is the conversation with Martha. The The conversation with Martha reveals truth about Jesus' divinity. Martha reveals her disappointment that Jesus had not come and that her brother had consequently died as a result of that. And then Jesus responded to her by telling her, your brother will rise again. To which Martha responded, well, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day because Jews believed in a physical bodily resurrection at the end of time. And so this is what she's referring to. When the time has come and God brings in his kingdom, all of those who were faithful and loyal to him would be resurrected. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live 
even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he said, Martha, do you believe in me? What Jesus is saying to Martha in a paraphrase is is simply this. The dead who believe in Jesus, yes, they will rise someday. They will rise someday. The living who believe in Jesus, well, they will never die spiritually. They will die physically, but they will never die spiritually. Even if they die physically, they will live again. Jesus is teaching her that eternal life does not begin at the resurrection. It begins at that moment when you believe in Jesus because Jesus gives real life to those who believe in him. And so she replied, Yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Martha's conversation reveals that Jesus has authority over life and death. It reveals his divinity to us. But then, secondly, there's the conversation with Mary. When Mary heard that Jesus had arrived, she got up quickly and went out to him, falling at his feet. The mourners rushed from the home, followed her because they thought she was going to the grave and they wanted to stay with her as a support. Now, Mary also revealed her disappointment that Jesus had not come and that her brother had consequently died as a result. But she was weeping at the feet of Jesus, mourning the loss of her brother. And we are told that as this is happening, Jesus was deeply moved by her weeping. And he is so moved, he is so troubled by the emotion and the heartbreak that's around him that he begins to weep along with her. And some of those who are in the crowd, who are observing what's happening, are seeing this man weep. And they said, look, He's crying, he's weeping. See how much he loved Lazarus, his friend? To be honest, I think they missed the point. Because I don't think he was weeping for Lazarus. I believe he was weeping with Mary because Mary was mourning. The others said, well, yeah, you might see the positive, but the way I see it is if he could open the eyes of the blind he could have kept Lazarus from dying in the first place. The conversation with Martha revealed Jesus' divinity, that that as the Son of God, he had authority over life and death. The conversation with Mary revealed his humanity as he wept along with those who were mourning, even though, hear this, even though he knew what he was about to do. To do. The third and final part of the story that I want us to consider is what I call tested belief. Jesus was brought to the tomb, the burial place of Lazarus. There was a stone laid across the entrance. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha 
resisted. Jesus, he's been dead for four days. He's decaying. His body, his body would, it'll smell. There's going to be a stench. Don't, don't move the stone. When someone died in this culture, it was a customary practice to visit the burial place for three consecutive days to ensure that the person was really dead. Once they passed the fourth day, it meant that everything was over. It was the end of hope. They were really gone. Martha is saying to Jesus, Jesus, it's been four days. Any opportunity for hope has already passed. Jesus, it's too late. Jesus then reminded her of their earlier conversation where she declared that she believed that he was the son of God. And Jesus said to her, Martha, do you believe that or not? You said it, but do you believe it or not? And she said, yes, I believe. And so they took the stone away. And Jesus, lifting his head up and praying to the Father, declaring to those who were present that what was about to take place would be for the benefit of those who were present, that they might believe in him too, that God might be glorified, And then Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come come out, come forth. And the dead man came out, wrapped in his grave clothes. And Jesus told them to unwrap him and let him go. Now some in the crowd believed in him because of this sign, this miracle. As they stood there and saw him call a man who had been dead for four days out of a grave, they looked at that and they said, oh man, we believe in him. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. Yet in that crowd are others who saw the same sign, the same miracle, but they rejected him. They didn't want to believe in him. And they went to the religious leadership and, they, and the leadership called a meeting. And in that meeting, they decided it is time to put an end to this Jesus. This sign, this miracle of, la- of raising Lazarus from the dead foreshadowed Jesus' own death and resurrection that would take place shortly, just about a week or so away. We see a number of parallels between the two in the foreshadowing. We see in both stories, multiple days in a tomb. In both stories, we see women weeping at the tomb. In both stories, we see a stone that is moved. In both stories, we have a reference to grave clothes. With Lazarus, he was wearing it. With Jesus, it was folded neatly inside. In the story of Lazarus, Jesus calls the name Lazarus and he comes forth. And in the story of his own death and resurrection, it's Mary's name in the garden that he calls. John is preparing us for what is coming in a short time for the one who has the victory over sin, death, 
in the grave. There are three observations that I would like to draw from this text this morning for our benefit. The first thing I've entitled, Grieving the Moment. Grieving the Moment. Anytime we experience loss in our lives, whether it be the passing of a loved one, a failed relationship, a broken marriage, illness, a job loss, a family crisis, a pet dying, financial losses, we grieve those losses. Now, there are many voices that tell us that we don't need to grieve. You don't need to grieve. You you don't need to be sad because, well, Jesus is with us. And so if Jesus is with us, we have hope and it's all going to be okay and grieving is a waste of time. There are others that attempt to minimize our grief by downplaying it, explaining it away, spiritualizing it, even shaming us for experiencing it. I want us to know today that God has designed us to grieve. God has designed us to grieve. Grieving is a healthy process because grieving loss is healthy. And if anyone tries to tell you different, then they are not telling you the truth. Grieving is healthy. Now, getting stuck in our grief and not moving forward is not healthy. But grieving as a process is healthy. It is God-created. It is God-ordained. Jesus didn't tell Mary, Mary, why are you crying? Stop crying. Don't do that. He didn't tell Mary. He said, Mary, don't grieve. I'm here now. I'm with you, Mary. You don't have to cry. It's all going to be okay in the future, Mary. You know, I'm going to take care of things. Don't waste your tears. He didn't scold her for expressing her disappointment in him when her expectations weren't met. No, none of that. Folks, it's important to see. Jesus knew what was coming next. He knew the miracle that he was about to perform. He knew that in a matter of a few moments... What was happening there, the weeping, was going to turn to rejoicing. But that's not what he focused on. He cried along with her. He grieved the moment. He entered into her pain. And so I want us to be encouraged today. Yes, Jesus is with you. And he mourns with those who mourn. And it's okay to grieve the moment. It is okay to cry. It is okay to be sad. It is okay to be heartbroken. It is okay to grieve the moment without shame and without judgment and without super spirituality. 
And why can I say that? Because Jesus demonstrated it for us in this story. Just because we know that in the end it's all going to be okay, it doesn't mean we shouldn't grieve. We always grieve the moment. Secondly, overrealized eschatology. Now, I know this sounds fancy and complicated, but trust me, it really isn't. Eschatology is just the fancy word that we often use to reference end times, to reference what we consider to be the timeline of the events associated with the second coming of Jesus. And so those events vary in the minds of different people. Their charts will be different, but it's all what we call our eschatology, the way we see the end unfolding. But that is just one aspect of eschatology. Eschatology literally means the study of the final things, the time of culmination, when it all comes together, our final future hope. As followers of Jesus, we have hope. And we have hope because of what Jesus accomplished in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. That ultimately, one day, we believe, because the Bible tells us so, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That someday, sickness will be no more. That some way, someday, death will be no longer. That someday, God will eradicate the effects of the curse of sin on mankind and on creation. God is not only redeeming us as people, but God is going to redeem all of his creation. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. God will bring things back into their original design before sin and the curse of sin damaged and destroyed them. So as followers of Jesus, we are encouraged by Scripture to look forward to the time of Jesus' return, to live our lives in a way that reflect that we are anticipating, longing for, hoping for the return of Jesus. Many have said to me in recent days, do you believe that everything that's happening in the world means that Jesus is coming soon? My answer is, I sure hope so. I sure hope so. Folks, what we're looking forward to is the full realization, the full realization of the kingdom of God. Now, we know that the kingdom is here in part, if you will. We call that the already but not yet. That Jesus came and with Jesus coming, the kingdom of God began to break in among us, breaking into the world. But we also believe that the kingdom of God will not be fully realized in its whole totality until Jesus comes back. Now, because the kingdom is here in part, we can experience a foretaste of things to come. Just a taste, just a glimpse of what's coming. So we can experience spiritual healing. We can experience, on occasion, physical healing. We experience, on occasion, miracles. 
At this church, we believe that miracles still happen, that God still heals. We, we believe that. But where we get into trouble is when we start expecting things that belong to the time after Jesus returns to be a part of our lives today. When we start believing that everyone should be healed regardless, that poverty and suffering should no longer exist and all of us should be living extravagant lifestyles with unlimited resources. These are things that belong to the not yet, not to the already. And so when I use the term over-realized eschatology, what I mean is this. An over-realized eschatology is when we expect things that are reserved for the not yet to always be the reality of the already, of the now. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he still died. People will die. Some people will be healed when we pray, but many will not. Now, there are a couple of significant problems with an overrealized eschatology. The first is it places an unnecessary burden on people because it tells them that if they have enough faith, they will experience the miracle. If they have enough faith, they will get the healing. If they have enough faith, they will glean the finances that they desire. The second is that it can potentially destroy our relationship with God because when things go different than what we ask God, when our expectations are not met, we become disappointed with God. We become disillusioned and we start to pull away from God. Folks, there was an example of overrealized eschatology that took place a few months ago in the U.S. in December of 2019. Perhaps some of you are aware of it because it was in the news because it was a part of a ministry that was very well known, very large. On December 14, 2019, a two-year-old girl named Olive unexpectedly died in her sleep. It was tragic. Her parents are a part of the worship ministry at Bethel in California. And Bethel is a prominent part of the Christian worship scene. Some of the songs you listen to, some of the songs we sing, have been written, recorded, and distributed by Bethel Music. The parents believed that her death was premature and called for prayer for the resurrection of their little girl, Olive. The Twitter hashtag, Wake Up Olive, went viral because of the fame of Bethel Church. Bethel Church and people all around the world were praying for God to raise Olive from the dead. In the meantime, her body was kept at the city morgue from December, December 14th until December the 20th. 
Each day, messages were posted on social media from the church, mostly from the parents, updating and encouraging people in this process. Messages such as these. Her time here is not done. Or thank you for your faith-filled declarations. Or come alive, Olive. But then finally, on the 20th of December, the parents sent out a message. And the message was this. Olive hasn't been raised. Breakthrough did not come. We are now planning a memorial and celebration of life service. The pastor asked that people's prayers now shift from asking God to raise Olive from the dead to comforting the family in their time of loss. This was a very sad message of disappointment and a very strong example of what happens when we expect what belongs to the time after Jesus returns to be a part of our lives today. Should we pray for healing and miracles? Yes, by all means, yes. Did Jesus raise people from the dead? Can he still do it? Yes. But we need to pray for understanding. We need to understand that there are realities that are a part of living in a broken and sinful world. That there are moments when God intervenes, there is no question, and changes the course of these things. That happens. I've seen it. But there are more times when he does not. When our prayers aren't answered the way we want him to answer. And when that happens, it is not a time to assess blame for anyone, for a lack on anyone, for a lack of faith, or to be disillusioned with God because he somehow let us down. Folks, a day is coming when all sickness, all tears, and death will be eliminated. But in the meantime, we live experiencing a foretaste of what is to come with our hope in our hearts for the full reality of it when Jesus comes. We just have to be careful with an over-realized eschatology. And thirdly and finally, eternal life. Jesus made it very clear to Martha that experiencing eternal life starts long before we breathe our last breath. It begins the moment that we believe in Jesus as the Son of God and will be fully realized on the day when we are in his presence. Jesus is asking each of us today the same question that he asked Martha. Jesus is asking each of us, do you believe in me? Do you believe in me? Some of the Jews from Jerusalem believed in Jesus after witnessing the miracle. And some who witnessed his miraculous power still turned away and did not believe. Jesus is asking each of us today, which will you choose? Do you believe in me? Do you believe that I'm the son of God? We're living in fearful and uncertain times. But there is a way to know peace. Peace. 
and have confidence despite what is happening around us. And that way is believing in Jesus because Jesus is the way. John says that by believing, you might have life. Eternal life can start for you and for me today. Early in John's gospel, he records a very popular scripture that many of you are probably very familiar with. John wrote these words, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That, for this purpose, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Have you experienced his eternal life today? You can by believing that Jesus is the Son of God and then making him the Lord of your life. Do you believe? Are you living this life in the reality that you are experiencing a foretaste now of eternal life because Jesus is with you. God is working in your life, leading and guiding you. And when the world is falling apart, there is a peace that's beyond your comprehension, your understanding because of who Jesus is in your life. That reality can be yours today if you believe in Jesus and make him the Lord of your life. In conclusion this morning, the journey to Easter reminds us that Jesus is with us. He mourns with those who mourn. It's okay to grieve the moment without shame or judgment. The journey to Easter reminds us that a day is coming when all sickness and tears and death will be eliminated. But in the meantime, we live experiencing a foretaste of what is to come with a hope in our hearts for the full reality of it when Jesus comes. And the journey to Easter reminds us that experiencing eternal life starts long before we breathe our last breath. It begins the moment we believe in Jesus as the Son of God and will be fully realized on that day when we're in his presence. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We just thank you today for all that you are and who you are in our lives. We thank you today on this journey to Easter that as many of us are called to mourn because of the losses in our lives, that you are there with us. But even though you are there with us, it doesn't mean we don't grieve the moment. Thank you that you allow us the opportunity to grieve the moment to process our pain as part of our healing and moving forward. And I pray today for those who are suffering loss. I pray for those who need your touch today as they are grieving. Lord, would you comfort those who grieve and remind them that as they mourn, you mourn alongside with them. Father, today we pray that you would help us to not become so zealous in our passion, that we misunderstand what your word is really saying 
and that we raise the bar on expectations for people that will only lead to their disappointment. God, we believe that a day is coming when all of these things are going to be fully realized. We believe in this day that you still work miracles and you still bring healing and you still do things beyond our comprehension. But Lord, I pray that we would never tie to that an expectation of, of, of Lord, your full kingdom into today's world and put that kind of pressure on people and put that kind of strain on our relationship with you. And Father, today I pray that if there's someone that's listening today to this message, your Holy Spirit is prompting them with a question. Do you believe in Jesus? I pray that you would help them today to believe, to put their trust in you, to make you the Lord of their lives. Father, we pray in the midst of this turmoil where the world seems to be crumbling around us, the financial world, the, the health world, it just everything seems to be falling apart. And there's so much fear and there's so much concern. But in the midst of that, those of us who know you are resting in your faith and in our faith in you and we're resting in your peace and your comfort and your strength because for reasons we can't even begin to understand, your presence makes a difference in our lives. Lord, we pray that for each and every person today, that they would come to believe in you, that they might know the life that you want to give them, not someday, but today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.